Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a story from Father Gregory Boyle's book, Barking to the Choir, which tells about his ministry with formerly incarcerated gang members in Los Angeles. I met Johnny when he was 15, but never in my office. He never wanted to be seen there. I'd catch him in the alley where his homies would gather. He was way tougher than someone his age ought to be. He had certainly put in work for his neighborhood, stuff that eventually landed him in juvenile hall, then probation camp, then youth authority, and finally in prison. He walked out of there at 20 years old, yet still refused to set foot in homeboy. But it takes what it takes. Johnny found himself tending to his mother who was struck with pancreatic cancer. In the last six months of her life, I'd visit and watch how tenderly Johnny would attend to her every need, becoming the hospice point person and caring for her with such affection. When she died, I buried her. And a week later, Johnny walked into Homeboy Industries. Four months into his stay with us as a trainee, he wandered into my office to talk. What happened to me yesterday, he begins, has never happened to me in my whole life. He tells me that he was riding the L.A. Metro Gold Line train, when he, which he caught at Chinatown Station, heading east after his day's work. The car he was in was packed, yet he managed to secure a seat for himself. Standing in front of him, hanging on to the pole, was a gang member, a little older than Johnny, but with tattoos and a little bit drunk. Johnny was wearing a homeboy t-shirt with the insignia and slogan, Jobs, not jails, quite large over his chest. The homie, still a little wobbly, looked closely at the shirt and then at Johnny. You work there? He asked. Johnny, initially hesitant to engage the guy, nodded. It any good? The guy fired back, not belligerent, but persistent. Johnny shrugged. Well, it's helped me. I don't think I'll ever go back to prison because of this place, tapping the front of his shirt as he said it. Then Johnny stood, feeling as the prophet Ezekiel did when he wrote, The Spirit has set me on my feet. He fished a clean piece of paper from his pocket and located a pen from another. He wrote down the address to homeboy. He tells me I couldn't believe I knew it by heart. Johnny handed the note to the man. Come and see us, he said. We'll help you. The guy hanging on the pole studied the piece of paper. Thank you, he quietly replied. The train arrived at its next stop and the guy got off. Johnny reclaimed his seat and looked around the train. What happens next, he tells me, has never happened to me in my whole life. Everyone on the train was looking at me. Everyone on the train was nodding at me. Everyone on the train was smiling at me. His lip trembles and a tear escapes. And for the first time in my life, I felt admired. Johnny's story is that of a young man who was accustomed to being looked down upon or even worse, overlooked, experiencing the feeling of admiration for the very first time in his 20s. Father Boyle shares an important truth through his stories, which is that no one becomes a member of a gang unless they've given up all hope. Society tends to demonize individuals who are in gangs because of the violence, the fear, and the profound havoc they wreak in neighborhoods. 
It's almost as if their sinfulness is tattooed, not just on their sleeve, but on their heart. But at the core of these gangs, at the heart of these individuals, are children who were neglected, abused, and abandoned. Every single one of them got to a place where they gave up all hope and joined the gang as their very last resort of belonging to something or someone. We spend so much time asking where our suffering comes from. It leaves us little time to ask where it leads. In the high poverty urban communities of Los Angeles County, one in three youth suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. That's twice the rate of soldiers returning from war, Boyle writes. The marvelous thing about Father Boyle's work and his writings is that he becomes, he's become a prophet who proclaims the belovedness of some of LA's most rejected residents. Boyle challenges us, what if we cease to pledge our allegiance to the bottom line and stood instead with those who line the bottom? Us versus them or, or just us? Good people and bad people or, or just God's people? Judgment or awe? Not some accepted and some rejected. No, the rejected, the widow, the orphan, the stranger are to be favored. Father Boyle's parables and stories provide me with an encounter of Christ. Whenever I'm having a difficult time with the gospel or wondering if any of this makes any difference, I'll admit to picking up one of Father Boyle's books and returning to the stories of these young men and women again. There's a rawness to their stories and an openness to sharing what it was like to walk to the very edge and be thrown a lifeline. There's no pretense or concern for religious conventions. Accompanied by the compassion of Father Boyle, they've confronted their own sinfulness and arrived at the place of rejoicing in their belovedness. For me, they embody the courage required to come face to faith face-to-face with our sinfulness and the subsequent rejoicing at the redemption we receive in Christ. Admittedly, formerly incarcerated gang members provide an example that is extreme for many of us. But their humanity, their belovedness, is no different than mine and yours. This is also the framework for today's gospel lesson from John, which tells at the time Jesus spent with the woman at the well. It is a story about the power of confronting our sinfulness and simultaneously being reminded of our belovedness. Now, there are several layers of nuance to the story that make it particularly meaningful. In Jesus' time, men did not gather at the well. Gathering water for the household was women's work. The well was the location where women gathered. It was a place of conversation and connection. Jesus' present presence at the well was the first aberration. His being there was reason enough for concern for his disciples. But then there's a lengthy exchange with a nameless woman. She was female, uneducated, and lacking a name memorable enough or worthy enough to appear in the biblical text. And then there is her religious affiliation. She was a Samaritan, another category, another category of other, which marks her as separate from Jesus and his Jewish upbringing. She's got three strikes against her. But the heart of the matter is none of these things. The heart of the matter is her sinfulness. The woman has had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her husband. 
More than once, she was unfaithful to the covenant she had made in marriage. In town, the woman was not someone who was talked to. They did not know her name. She was someone who was talked about. In returning from her encounter with Jesus, it is the ownership of her sinfulness that is the starting point for her evangelism. Come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. They knew, it. They knew exactly what she was talking about. Come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. She knows what they all think of her and how they talk about her. So I wonder, I wonder if it is the power of owning her sinfulness that draws them to meet Jesus. To put it more bluntly, she was perhaps the least likely to usher in the reign of Christ. And yet it was a sinful, unnamed Samaritan woman who became the very first evangelist of Jesus in John's gospel. When we approach others attuned to their holiness, searching for their assets instead of searching for their deficits, we are confronted over and over again with the eternal nature of the reconciling love of Christ. Here's the thing. The Samaritans who shared a hometown with the nameless woman didn't proclaim Jesus as the savior of the world because the sinful woman was forgiven. They proclaimed Jesus as the savior of the world because they were forgiven. They never would have known that if they hadn't listened to the least likely prophet. God wants nothing more than for us to be reconciled. God gives to us, to the thirsty, not just water, but a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. As God delivered the Israelites who were thirsty in the wilderness, the woman at the well, and the Samaritans of Sikar, so God longs for us to repent of our sinfulness, which is no match for God's grace. Amen.